This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. Devastation. It is. Uh, it's. It's. It's really been a shock to people personally, me personally, uh, and it's. Uh, it's. It's been the kind of thing. It's beyond what we anticipated this would be. So there is shock. Uh, we're dealing with the um, the report now, looking at it and learning, and it's absorbing and setting it setting into to our thinking now. And uh, this is this is a tough period. I, I, I would say probably grief is one of the best ways to, to describe this. That's Ed Litton, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, speaking recently to NBC News about a report on the sexual abuse crisis in the SBC. Here's a headline from the Tennessee and Southern Baptist Convention leaders decide to release long secret list of accused ministers. This is a story that is of obvious national import. How are the major news outlets covering it? Are they getting the subtleties of what the Southern Baptist Convention actually is? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. It is a flood of coverage. Uh, Every media outlet practically is talking about this. In this flood of coverage of the SBC scandal, what are the issues that really matter? Where is this thing going? Well, first of all, let's start with the flood itself. I, I think this is a very interesting situation and that the Southern Baptist Convention is a very complex organization. And quite frankly, there are people who know this story better than others. So the first advice that I would give to our listeners is ignore 90% of the national media at this point on this particular story. You know that that old saying in real estate, location, location, location? That's what this story is. When you're looking for coverage of this story, where the newsrooms are located and who sits in them is especially important. And in that case, even though I might have some quibbles and some problems from story to story with a few of the newsrooms I'm going to cite here, I'm going to give listeners a basic principle here. The people who broke this story are in Texas at the Houston Chronicle and in San Antonio. Robert Downen is the reporter who's been writing this thing. Like I said, Robert and I could probably argue about some points here, but they've got the story. They're in it. They've helped, in a way, create it by uncovering it. And they're learning the Baptist polity and have shown they're serious to understanding it. Second, a brand new religion reporter. How would you love to have this happen to you? Right after getting the job as the religion reporter for the Nashville Tennessean, this story started breaking like crazy. The Nashville Tennessean is another one of the papers you're going to need to follow. It's sitting in the same town as the headquarters of the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention and what used to be called the Southern Baptist Vatican. 
Liam Anderson is the reporter there that people are going to want to follow somehow. Mainly you can look for his reporting at USA Today, and sometimes you'll find the ability to read open source stories there. You also have a veteran Southern Baptist watcher or two at Religion News Service, and that's Bob Smetana and Adele Banks. These are two people that you're going to need to follow. But if people are looking for something that's free and easy to find, the Southern Baptist Convention itself has Baptist press. And then on the moderate to liberal side of the Southern Baptist Convention, you have kind of a global news Baptist organization. I always get the wording mixed up there. But Global Baptist News, I think is the name of it. And these are both going to be advocacy publications from the perspective of their owners. But these people do know Baptist polity, and they do know the terminology. And there's going to be lots of information available there. Now, at the national level, normally where we would look, National Public Radio, New York Times, the Associated Press even, where there are so good religion reporters, but still, I'm going to advise people to look to Nashville, Houston, and to the actual Baptist news services and those two particular reporters at Religion News Service. You need people who understand the Baptist system. And in terms of where this is going, right now, everything revolves around the actions of the Executive Committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. So let's pause for a moment for a brief kind of church polity issue, but I can let you know what this sounds like in a story. I just praised the Houston Chronicle, but let me read one brief passage from one of the big stories there when the story broke, the report story broke. Let me read just a bit of that and then kind of help readers interpret something. Guidepost, that's the organization that did the independent third-party study of the Southern Baptist Convention's actions here. Guidepost investigated the SBC's 86-member executive committee, the convention's highest governing entity. The firm's investigators had unprecedented access to the SBC's leadership and reviewed thousands of internal documents including previously confidential communications between SBC lawyers. Now, the key phrase there is that the executive committee is the convention's highest governing entity. I think that's misleading to readers. Readers need to understand that the Southern Baptist Convention as an organization exists only about two to three days a year. The convention exists when it's in session, this year it'll be in California here in just a couple of weeks, when the convention is in session, it can vote and order its agencies and institutions to do things. This fascinating story by Bob Smetana on how close the SBC came to not having a chance to vote to create this third-party investigation. And if something doesn't happen on the floor of that convention, then there is no authority to do it. Okay, the executive committee is charged by the convention to do its business for it when it's out of session. But it's my understanding, and I, like, I have decades of experience in Baptist life, if the executive committee goes against the wishes of the Southern Baptist Convention, 
it obviously has operated outside its legal framework. The question here is what happens when the executive committee or members of the executive committee do something without the permission of the convention, which in this case is hide cases of sexual abuse and even harass the victims. Now, you say, well, that's all nice and technical. What does this have to do with reality? The big question here is who can the victims sue? Where can they find justice? In the Southern Baptist system, now this changes from denomination to denomination, church to church. In the Southern Baptist Convention, there is nothing that resembles a Roman Catholic diocese. In the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, who owns the property and the buildings of individual churches? The congregations themselves. The congregation does. Okay, so something very similar could happen there. However, in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, isn't there a process for ordination that is controlled by the denomination? Oh, yes. We have something akin to dioceses with a kind of much... The property issue is not a part of it. The district doesn't own anything but its own building and its own okay. property, but the congregations own their own property. Okay. But listeners can already hear how complex this gets. Obviously, in the Episcopal Church, we've had decades of warfare over who owns the buildings, and it's clear now that the national church owns the buildings, not just the local diocese. That's who always in the past, but they changed their laws specifically to prevent conservatives being able to get away with full dioceses. That's another issue. And in the Episcopal Church, you have obviously standards for ordination, and people are ordained or they're not ordained and recognized by the church. So if you have a clergy person commit sexual abuse, who can you sue? The diocese and the national church. They're who established this person as ordained, and they are who controls the insurance policies, trust funds, and the properties of the church in which the abusers were ministering. None of that exists in the Southern Baptist Convention. One of the big questions here that listeners and reporters, by the way, need to understand is the Southern Baptist Convention is made up of a network of institutions. These institutions can be sued for things that are done by people working for them. In the weeks and months ahead, where is this story going? One of the places it's going to go is whether or not you have lawsuits, and I predict there will be those, brought against 47,000 individual churches because of the actions of people that those churches hired. Okay, I can ask another question as a Baptist, former Baptist, I should say, as a Baptist preacher's kid. Does that mean you can sue the deacons of the church, the people who make decisions, or the whole church itself? Who has the insurance policies? Anyway, a lot of small churches could end up being bankrupted by lawsuits here because there's nobody above them to take the fall. There is no standard for ordination in the Southern Baptist Convention. It's totally congregational. There is no system of hiring credible clergy at the national and regional levels. That's just not Baptist. They're totally congregational. 
Then you have seminaries. You have mission agencies, both foreign and domestic. You have state conventions. I'm not sure the degree to which many state conventions own anything other than the building in which they work, and a lot of them are probably renting that property. That sounds a little bit like the Missouri Synod Lutherans. There are publishing houses, and then there are some other agencies of the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm assuming those institutions could be accused of hiding abusers, hiring abusers, or even members of their staff being abused. But what's between that local congregation and those Southern Baptist institutions that exist? Right now, that is the billion-dollar question. What we need to know is what is the status of the executive committee? What does the executive committee own? What insurance policies does the executive committee have to protect itself from lawsuits for hiding abuse and sheltering abusers? You and I have talked about this in the past. The executive committee is this very interesting institution. And is it legally an agency? Because what everybody wants to know right now is how do you sue the Southern Baptist Convention? And the simple question is, I don't think you can sue it at all, except for actions of the National Convention. And trust me, on this one, there weren't any votes for what was uncovered in this report. Now, that's a ton of information. Do you have a question as a follow-up before I, I go on and plunge on even further? Well, I'm curious because the the headline that I noticed over the weekend was a quotation from Russell Moore, who used to run the yeah. Ethics and Public Policy Center there for the Southern Baptist Convention. And I believe that he called it an apocalypse yeah. for it. And then I heard in, in, in a National Public Radio a weekend edition interview with him, he said... And I paraphrase, but I, the, the two words that stuck out to me was a criminal conspiracy. You could think of yeah. nothing less than the term criminal conspiracy on the part of the executive committee. Is yeah. he overstating the case? As no, a reporter, he, what would you do with no, that? No, he's, he's not overstating the case. But what I just said is who and what is the executive committee? And what resources do they have to sue? Now, here's another statement from that same Houston story. Among the findings, let me read this one. A small group of SBC leaders routinely misled other members of the Southern Baptist Convention's Executive Committee on abuse issues and rarely mentioned the frequent and persistent warnings and pleas for help from survivors. Fearing lawsuits, leaders similarly failed to inform the SBC's 15 million members that predators and pedophiles were targeting churches. So here, here's our next question. What votes were held by the entire executive committee that hid abusers or silenced victims or abused victims? Or, as this story said, and I believe this is accurate, and I believe this is what Russell Moore is talking about as well, a small group of SBC leaders routinely misled other members of the executive committee. Does that mean the executive committee itself is not to blame for the hiding of many of these abuses? Is it possible? I can think of several scenarios here. Are people going to need to sue individual members 
of the executive committee who took these actions. It'd be very interesting to know what members of the executive committee have taken out personal insurance policies to protect them from lawsuits. I have no idea how a reporter would find that out, but I guarantee you some of these guys have, and I use guys <laughs> informally but literally in 99.9% .9 of these cases. Is the executive committee corporately to blame for the actions of individual members that abused their trust of the whole executive committee? Fascinating question. Do you have to sue these guys for their individual liability levels, their own properties, whatever? I know this sounds very, very technical and very legal, but that's where this thing is going. Who can you sue? I think it would be very interesting right now if you saw Southern Baptist agencies suddenly start selling some of their properties. The reporter in me would say, if a Southern Baptist entity sold off property within the last year or two while this thing has been building up, that would strike me as very suspicious. That probably means they know lawsuits are coming and they're trying to get rid of properties that they own and control that would make them liable. Just as we've seen Catholic dioceses have to sell land and sell seminaries and sell other buildings to be able to raise money to pay victims of sexual abuse. Well, in the Southern Baptist system, those properties are owned by individual seminaries, mission agencies, churches, publishing houses, etc. What does the Southern Baptist Convention itself own? That's a really big question. I hope I'm not dwelling too much on that, but I hope you could see why that's important. So, Terry, you had mentioned the Houston Chronicle, which you said was good, The uh, mm. then another local outlet or a kind of regional outlet. What was the worst major news outlet treatment of this that you have seen so far? Well, frankly, in the flood of all this, I haven't had a chance to read all of the national coverage. That would be impossible. I think if you even tried to do justice to the coverage of the Nashville, Tennessean and the Houston Chronicle and these independent and semi-independent Baptist agency press services, that would be a book. I'm not seeing a tremendous amount of errors other than this overarching simplistic statement that the Southern Baptist Convention did such and such. It's much more complex than that. I mean, if you can point me to a Southern Baptist Convention action that punished the victims, the actual convention voting to do that, I don't think you're going to find anything like that. The worst you're going to find is that the convention, when it was formally in session as a legal binding entity, they did approve the members of the executive committee. Is it possible that the Southern Baptist Convention is responsible for the selection of those executive committee members? Except one of the things we're hearing right now is it wasn't the whole executive committee. So far in the stories that I've read, I haven't seen examples of the entire executive committee voting 
to do some of these abuses in this case. So right now, frankly, I'm trying to catch up with all of this. The story broke while I was away from home. You need to picture me driving across the plains of eastern Kansas through Kansas City and through St. Louis, of all places, with my wife with a cell phone trying to read me some of these initial breaking reports. That's literally where I found out about all this while at the wheel of a car. So I'll catch up with the national coverage. What I'm trying to tell our listeners is at this point, that's not where the action is going to be in terms of the coverage that you need to know about. Maybe follow the Associated Press, and most of what you'll get there will be pretty good, in part because one or two of their reporters have religion beat experience, and even one of them has experience in the city of Nashville. To repeat the theme from the opening of this talk, location, location, location. So here's the headline from the Tennessean that you'd mentioned before that really caught my eye, and that is Southern Baptist Convention leaders decide to release long-secret lists of accused ministers. Russell Moore said he had been asking for a database to track abusers and was told repeatedly that it couldn't happen. Turns out it was happening, just not for the protection of uh, victims. Yep, it's for the protection of the abusers. Okay, yeah, that's very good. Let me walk through that. What Russell Moore was requesting was some Baptist entity to keep this list and be in charge of legally keeping up with the abuser so that people could call in and check who's an abuser and who isn't an abuser, who's been accused, who hasn't been, who's been convicted, who hasn't been convicted. And what Baptists were saying is, we don't have an agency charged by the convention to do that, so thus we don't have the authority to do it. Plus, they're saying, we would be creating a national agency that could be sued, when in reality, under our polity, you have to sue the individual congregations or the individual seminaries, schools, etc., etc. So you and I have talked about this before. Local church congregational polity kind of has been protecting the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, lo and behold, some members of the executive committee have now created a massive wide open door by creating exactly this kind of list, but for the opposite purpose. But once again, let me read this from the Houston report about this. Longtime SBC leaders kept a private list of abusive pastors and ministers, despite claiming for years that such an idea was impractical for stopping predators and impossible to adopt because of the SBC's decentralized structure. Great sentence there with lots and lots of stuff in it. And it is accurate that the decentralized structure has made that difficult. You'd have to change Baptist polity to create an agency to keep up with all those ministers. And you're asking the SBC to keep up with ministers that it didn't ordain and that it couldn't stop local churches from ordaining and couldn't stop local churches from hiring. It's really complex. But they kept a list anyway apparently to protect their own buddies or their buddies who hired these people, et cetera, et cetera. So this private list now becomes, I think, the focal point for some of the initial lawsuits. But notice they hid the list 
from the executive committee itself. So can you blame the executive committee as a whole, as an institution, for the actions, potentially criminal actions, of members of that executive committee? That's where the action goes. But that secret list is ground zero right now. And I tell you right now, there are lawyers researching like crazy. What does the executive committee own? What insurance policies does it have? What trust funds does it control? And can we blame the entire executive committee if it never even had a chance to vote on any of this stuff when it was done by individual members? And if so, how do we sue the individual members? The end game in all of this is another topic that you and I have talked about. Out there at the level of local congregations, now not seminaries, schools, agencies, mission boards, etc. Out at the level of individual congregations, one of the things that could happen is we could see churches that don't want to cooperate with any kind of informal system to try to track abusers, turn them in, people who don't agree with the actions of this guidepost study and don't want to support actions that the SBC will undoubtedly take in the next couple of its national meetings over the next few years. Those people are, for the most part, going to just go right out into the world of totally independent Baptist and non-denominational congregational life. And the people who are in those pews will have even less protection they'll have even less ground to stand on in terms of fighting for rights. And, Todd, how many times have you and I talked about how much the press struggles to understand the decentralized world of non-denominationalism, how one pastor with a lot of Facebook followers outside of Nashville can suddenly be turned into a voice for evangelicalism in America, you know, when he may have just a couple of hundred members and no connections to any institutions with any power at all other than Facebook and YouTube, will picture even more churches and pastors going into that world as a way of hiding from whatever changes are made in the Southern Baptist Convention. The non-denominational, unofficial world of Baptist life and evangelical Protestant life could be about to get even wilder, as if <laughs> that seems unimaginable, but that is what could happen. With only a few minutes here, Terry, an enterprising reporter, should they be calling the headquarters of other large American denominations and asking questions about how you guys handle yeah. this situation? That's perfectly valid. I mean, right now it seems like sexual abuse has now been spread to the Southern Baptist Convention when before reporters only thought about it in terms of Roman Catholicism. So the vengeance has come for one of the Protestant denominations. We can ask how others are handling it. But I think the main thing reporters need to be doing right now, and we're beginning to see statements come out, we need to be hearing right now about whether there are cases of abuse that have been covered up, hidden by individual Southern Baptist schools, seminaries in particular, 
agencies, the Foreign Mission Board, the American Mission Board, because these are institutions that hire and fire and accreditate their own employees like missionaries. Those are institutions that can be sued. So if I was a reporter at this point, I'd be looking at the zip codes of where those organizations are based and how close they are to them and start asking questions to the leaders of those legally liable institutions. How are you going to handle this? How will your policies change? And then, yeah, it's perfectly fair game to ask the same questions about similar agencies in other denominations. But in the world of Methodism, the Episcopal Church, Presbyterianism, various forms of Lutherans, etc., not to mention the large African-American churches, most of which are congregational and polity, what are the structures? Who owns property? Who controls trust funds? Who controls the insurance policies protecting them from libel suits? All that sounds very bloodless and cruel and technical, but we need to know the answers to questions like that so that women, men, and children who have been abused have some chance of knowing how they can appeal for justice. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thanks. Glad to be here, sort of, in this case. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.